Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of August 18th, Seeing in 3D. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we analyze credit spreads from three unique perspectives, technical, fundamental, and macroeconomic, to try and gauge where credit spreads will go when liquidity returns. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, it's great to be back, isn't it? Oh, it sure is. Sure is. We haven't recorded in a couple weeks. Uh, Danny Belton was out celebrating his wedding and his honeymoon, so congratulations again for, for Mr. Belton over here. And I have good news for you. Didn't miss much. Credit spreads have not moved much in the past couple weeks. We're slightly wider, and we are most certainly in the summer doldrum portion of the year here. Uh, just looking at trace secondary market volumes in the IG market for Monday, we see the fourth lightest day of the year in 2021 on Monday and uh, the lowest non-Friday. So clearly we're at that time of year where there's more vacations and less volatility in spreads here. And, and maybe that gives us sort of an opportunity here to look at credit spreads with you know sort of a clean lens and set expectations for going forward. And everyone's back in their chairs come September, and we typically see you know seasonally a pretty heavy issuance wave come then. So for today's episode, Dan, I thought we'd maybe do something a little bit different. I thought maybe we could look at credit spreads in, in, in really the three main pillars – technical, fundamental, and macroeconomic, and talk about how those three you know, clear drivers of credit, how they've gotten to where we are now, what's driven this little bit of a backup, and then more importantly, what to expect in the weeks and months ahead as, as we look forward to the second half of the year. So with that in mind, I think we should probably start with the technical dimension, because I think if any of them are making news in recent weeks, it's likely been technicals. In fact, August supply, at least up until this week, has been extraordinarily heavy. We've seen going into the week $78 billion in IG supply, excluding 2020. That's almost the average for the previous three years and five years for the entire month of August alone, which is you know somewhere around $83, $85 billion. And we will certainly be higher than that, even with a bit of a cooling in primary market supply here. So I guess let's start there, Dan, on the issuance wave. What have you seen that's been driving the heavy corporate supply, and how has the market been handling it? Yeah, so a lot of it has had to do with the sanguine market conditions. And we think that there's been a lot of pulling forward of supply that might have otherwise come either later in August or maybe even early in September. Corporate treasurers looking at the market, seeing interest rates where they are right now, and seeing that now is a pretty good time to fund. This is especially true given the uncertainty that comes with the Fed taper, which is a looming threat perceived or otherwise to 
interest rates and credit spreads, as well as the Delta variant and the uncertainty that brings. So that's probably also increased some borrowing needs to some extent, at least as it has related to the uncertainty. Obviously, we saw unprecedented borrowing needs in the spring of last year as COVID brought uncertainty to the corporate landscape. We're seeing now kind of a mild increase in borrowing needs, just as the uncertainty that the Delta variant has brought to the macroeconomic landscape. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I use the word borrowing need or borrowing preference. Certainly the big rally in treasuries we saw at the end of July has probably contributed to issuance as well. Seeing some more use of refinancing in corporate deals. I think we were down around 7% of new deals were coming with the use of proceeds of refinancing. And and that's ticked higher recently, hasn't it? Yeah, we're at about 16% month to date in August. So uh, that's the highest that we've seen since about February this year. Yeah, so a bit more refinancing, maybe a bit more uncertainty on the macroeconomic front. We'll talk about that, obviously, when we get to that dimension. But I think you said it, Dan. It's really just now is a very good time to borrow ahead of what can certainly be described as a more uncertain outlook in September and October. So I do think that's a driving force. One characteristic of the heavy supply that I think we should talk about is first that it really hasn't been financials. We saw the financials come out with their issuance in July once they emerged from blackout periods as they typically do. But August supply has not been tilted towards financials. And that's a bit of a departure from the trend we've seen all year where financial supply has really been dominating and is certainly the primary driver behind the very, very heavy issuance, historically heavy issuance if we set aside last year. It's been more diverse in August. We've seen less financials and we've seen just a lot of deals. It has not been jumbo, say 20 billion, 20 billion plus deals from a very large company. It's been just a lot of, you know, normal sized deals from many different borrowers. Yeah. So last week we saw 39 different borrowers in the first three days of the week. That was the most that we'd seen in terms of the number of deals since September of last year. So we're seeing a lot more diversity in the types of borrowers. Like you said, a lot of the recent supply, specifically in July, was concentrated in financial borrowers. There's just been a more broadening of borrowing needs in August, at least up until this week, which has seen a a pretty big slowdown. You talked about the 39. I think that's the third largest in a three-day span of all time. And that follows week where we saw 30 borrowers. And, you know, we had two weeks in a row with 30 plus borrowers, just for reference, prior to the beginning of August, we had only seen 30 individual borrowers in a single week, twice in 2021, and not since the early part of March. So just a lot of borrowers. And I think that's an important note to make as we look at how the market has handled supply, because now we can look at a bit about how the supply has been digested by the market, because as our listeners well know, we've actually been highlighting the July slash August period as one that is usually a bit of a headwind from a demand standpoint. I mean, the drivers are pretty obvious here, you know, heavy vacations, so there's just less coverage on the investor side. Uh, But also the expectations for very heavy September supply can often just lead people to maybe be more patient and wait for the potential for a bit of new issue concession come September. So we came into the time period expecting a bit of a deterioration in demand. And we saw that really starting in early July. We saw concessions go from printing you know, pretty consistently negative for the majority of the year, but certainly the three months leading up to July. They flipped positive in July and have basically remained there since then. Now looking at the most recent supply last week, which was the largest week in supply since Memorial Day, we saw concessions move lower to the second lowest observation we've had since early July, despite the very, very heavy supply. Now, it wasn't all roses. We did see subscription levels drop a bit and are banging around some of the lows in recent months. But I think when you put that in the perspective of the number of borrowers, That sort of makes sense. 
Yeah. And the other thing I'd add about the new issue concessions here is that really over the last year or so, since volatility subsided after the onset of the pandemic, we've seen new issue concessions more constructive for lower rated issues within the high grade space. So triple B's have tended to price tighter than single A's, which have tended to price tighter than double A's. That actually reversed in the, in the last week or so where we've seen more constructive new issue pricing for single A's than for triple B's. Now, we don't want to make too much out of a trend that's just persisted for one or two weeks now, but it's worth highlighting that this could be viewed as some weakening of demand, and it's something that we should monitor going forward, especially as it relates to a potential change in the yield grab mentality. Yeah, but I, I think it fits in with the overriding view just that, you know, we see seasonals deteriorate during August. You know, we talked about this on a previous podcast, but looking at average monthly moves over various time horizons to sort of try to smooth out the impact of any idiosyncratic factor in a given year, we see August consistently underperforms in, in IG spreads. And so, you know, we see that now with spreads backing up a bit, concessions and subscription levels not great, not bad, but not great, and some outperformance at the top end of the credit spectrum. It all fits well into that little envelope. And just to come back to the most recent week again, you know, subscription levels lower, but I think that makes sense when you have so many individual deals, perhaps not every investor can be in on every deal. So, you know, they're going to be some with passes, you're going to have subscription levels fall a bit. But on the deals that investors were involved in, we saw healthy demand driving concessions to their lowest point since July. So I think from a technical perspective, the market digested this supply wave in August pretty well. And looking ahead, obviously, demand should come back just seasonally in September. And from the supply side, Going back to the drivers of the heavy supply we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, I think there then is reason to think that supply may not be as heavy come September. Yeah, it'll likely still be heavy in, in terms of historicals, but there is reason to think that some of this issuance that we've seen in the past couple of months is done at the expense of issuance that might have come maybe in the fall. So I would look for September supply to be heavier than recent Septembers, excluding 2020, but probably a little bit slower than the pace that we've seen for most of this year. Yeah, I'm with you. I think given the way issuance has played out for all of 2021, and then most recently in August as well, I think the investor community is probably expecting a very, very large wave in September. And we're saying issuance could just come in close to average, which will still be heavy, of course, but it won't be a tidal wave. And so you can have the technical picture improving from what I'd call, you know, modest headwinds these past couple of weeks to maybe more neutral in September with the return of demand and with the return of liquidity. So I think, you know, just to put a pin in the technical discussion, I think we're going to see improvement in technicals in the next couple of weeks. Even into the heavy supply, I think the return of demand and supply maybe not being as heavy as people expect, we could see net technicals start to improve. And with that, I want to transition then to the second pillar of our conversation today, which is just fundamentals. And this will probably be not as long of a conversation because I think the fundamental picture in credit has been exceedingly positive for a while now. And now we're getting to the end of Q2 earnings season. I think most companies have reported at this point and fundamentals remain very strong. Yeah, Dan, there's not really much nuance here with respect to the fundamentals really across the board as fundamentals relate to high-grade credit investors. They've been exceedingly positive in the second quarter. So we have earnings growing both from the standpoint of revenues and net income at about 6% from the first quarter of this year. Leverage has fallen pretty significantly. The median IG borrower's net debt to EBITDA has fallen from 3.31 to 3.2. That's the largest single quarter decline in leverage since the onset of the pandemic. 
And then obviously, given the improved earnings and improved leverage ratios, interest coverage ratios have improved and now sit better than they were even before the pandemic. So a lot of reason for optimism from that standpoint. We've had cash ratios fall a little bit from their pandemic peaks, but cash ratios have stabilized since then and sit well above what they were just from the eve of the pandemic. So really across the board, there's not much to nitpick about corporate fundamentals, even though that hasn't really been reflected in, in outperformance and spreads since the second quarter earnings were released. Yeah, I think that just goes to tell you that fundamentals have been strong. I don't have a whole lot to add here. Uh, obviously, we've seen rating agencies agreeing net upgrades over downgrades uh, significantly higher here. In fact, uh, you know, to go back a, a little bit, you made the point about leverage, the decline from 331 to 320, uh, the biggest quarterly decline since the pandemic. We didn't talk about this in our technical discussion, but even as early as our 2021 outlook we published in December, we were expecting corporate supply to be very heavy in the first half of the year, just given pandemic uncertainty, to then give way to a slowing of issuance in the second half of the year as corporations look to delever. That appears to be underway with the deleveraging process begun. A bit of a caveat there is we've seen very, very heavy corporate supply as a result of deleveraging, which sounds counterintuitive, but a, a key trend in 2021 is the refinancing of more traditional types of financing, bank loans and things of that nature into corporate debt, given just how pristine credit conditions have been. So despite very heavy supply, we're seeing leverage fall. And if a lot of that refinancing has been done now, the next logical conclusion is continued deleveraging will be coming at the expense of corporate debt issuance. Just more reason to think that uh, September supply may not be as heavy. So I know we went back to technicals there, but it, you, you, your discussion on fundamentals flagged that. I, I guess, you know, really for me, not much to add. Fundamentals have been a tailwind for credit. They're going to remain a tailwind for credit going forward. And so, you know, we, we combine the two, an improving technical picture and a still strong fundamental picture. We have to add that third component now, which is the impact of the macroeconomic outlook. And things, you know, in the past few weeks have likely dimmed on a macroeconomic perspective. Yeah, certainly the rise in the Delta variant, and that has not been reflected in corporate fundamentals from the second quarter, but that has definitely cast a lot of doubt on economic growth expectations. We've seen some pretty gloomy consumer sentiment numbers released recently, and I think there's going to be a lot more uncertainty from this factor than there is from technicals or fundamentals. Yeah, certainly the macroeconomic outlook is going to be extremely important. And all signs at this point seem to indicate that we're going to be hitting a bit of a slower growth trajectory in terms of the recovery going forward. The argument that I would make, though, is that that's not necessarily a bad thing for credit spreads. In fact, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that it is a tailwind for credit spreads. You know, our listeners will know that we've been highlighting inflation as actually the primary threat to credit here going forward because if we're in a regime where growth concerns are the market's primary worry, then it stands to reason the treasury rates are going to remain very, very low. And we should see a yield grab mentality take hold that's going to drive credit spreads to what I think will be historically narrow levels. And, you know, certainly near term, as optimism has faded, we've seen a bit of widening in credit spreads, and that makes sense. But, you know, looking at things over a longer term, as long as we don't see a truly redefining event from a growth perspective, I think that slow growth and the sort of muddle through scenario is actually a good thing for credit. Yeah, even within that low growth scenario, to me, it kind of goes back to this Goldilocks scenario that we've been talking a lot about, which is that 
if growth is slow, but it doesn't lead to downgrades and defaults, well, that could be a positive for credit. It's if growth is really dire and we do get another wave of downgrades and defaults, well, that would be a problem for, for credit spreads. But it doesn't seem like that's what we're looking at. And if we look back to, as we've talked about in the past, this 2010 experience, which saw you know the economy start to recover from a recession and then significant optimism gave way to more pronounced growth concerns, you know, that could be what we're looking at now. And that wasn't a scenario in which we saw significant downgrades and defaults. We just saw lower growth, which ultimately resulted in lower spreads as the economic recovery progressed. Yeah, I liked the 2010 comparison a lot. And I'd like to add a bit more nuance to it and talk about the key role that accommodation plays, both from a fiscal and monetary standpoint, uh, back then and even now. You look back to the 2010 environment, and and there was weakness underlying the global economy for sure. We know it came to light in 2011 and 2012 with the European debt crisis. But we started to see those cracks in 2010, to the point that the ECB, after months of maintaining that they were not going to be doing any QE purchases in May of 2010, they announced the the S&P, their first round of QE, to provide some support to a weakening outlook in Europe. And so we we see in mid-2010 the the optimism around that growth that you talked about, Dan. We see that optimism start to fade. We see the first initial cracks from Europe starting to come to the surface. But the ECB quickly moves to, to allay those concerns. We see a minor widening in credit, nothing major, and actually on a percentage basis, roughly in line with what we've seen in, in credit in the past couple of weeks, where we've seen spreads move eight, nine basis points wider off cyclical lows established on June 30th. And then that widening in credit in 2010 is quickly retraced, and, and we return to historical lows alongside a 150 basis point rally in treasuries as optimism for the global economic recovery fade, and we go into this sort of low volatility, low rate environment that should be supportive for spreads. Now, of course, we have to acknowledge that then we get to 2011 and the cracks out of Europe begin to widen. You know, the European debt crisis really starts to take hold. But let's not forget also at that time, the ECB raises rates in April of 2011. And it's at that point that we see a significant move in credit. Uh, You know, dwarfing the 2010 widening, we see a significant move, a flight to quality event. The argument I'm making here is that there may well be cracks in either the domestic economy or the global economy or both that have been sort of papered over by stimulus for the past year from the Fed and from the fiscal authority. But those cracks are going to remain papered over until the accommodation starts to come off. And I'm not referring to tapering here. Tapering's coming. Tapering's well telegraphed. It's well expected. You know, in 2011, it was a rate raised by the ECB. It wasn't, you know coming down on asset purchases. And, and and looking on the fiscal side, you know, those unemployment benefits are scheduled to come off soon. We're going to see less and less stimulus, but we're already seeing hesitance from the lawmakers to take their foot off the accommodation gas pedal. I'd point to here the extension of the eviction moratorium that was originally scheduled to expire in September. It's been pushed out to October. Now they say that the eviction moratorium was extended to a more targeted audience. You know, we're only giving it to people that quote unquote needed at this point. And those targeted areas where the eviction moratorium was extended was based off of where COVID was spreading. Well, as you dig into the numbers, over 90% of renters are now still unable to be evicted. And, you know, whether that's right or wrong, we're obviously not going to take a stance on that here. But what, what I'm using that to demonstrate is it's very hard to take stimulus back. And given the spread of Delta and more economic concerns surrounding the potential for more lockdowns, how smoothly will reopening of schools go in the fall, things of that nature, 
I'm just a little skeptical on how much stimulus is actually going to be pulled back at this point. And so that means that to the extent that there are cracks in the economy that might drive a more meaningful widening in credit spreads, I don't think you're going to see those cracks widen while stimulus is still so strong. It didn't happen in 2011 until we had a rate rise by the ECB, and I don't think it will happen in this cycle until we see a more meaningful pullback on stimulus, either from the government or from the Fed. And I'm not referring to tapering here. Yeah, and just to put a bow on that, you know, most of the growth concerns that we've seen, they're not anything of the uh, ilk that we had concerns about the economic picture, you know, in March of last year. These are more concerns about the economic growth potential being in the range of 3% as opposed to 5%. So that doesn't really represent a credit risk for investors. And you combine that with inflation proving transitory. It seems to be on that track. I'm not 100% convinced yet, but it seems to be proving transitory. Then you've got low growth, low inflation, which is going to be low rates and low credit spreads. And actually, getting a bit more high level here, if all the global fiscal and monetary stimulus we've had in the past year doesn't result in inflation getting very high, which again, it, it doesn't appear to be the case. It does appear to be transitory. We have to have a longer term rethink of what inflation is now. You know, it, the deflationary forces that we've talked about for years that everyone just kind of talks about demographics, technology, whatever it is, clearly those are extremely strong deflationary forces if all of this accommodation is only going to result in transitory inflation. So the long-term view here, why 30-year rates are so low, it's just self-reinforcing. Rates are going to stay very low and we're going to have very low credit spread. So you know, I think now at this point we can we can pull together all three of our our dimensions, if you will, into you know a single outlook for credit, and it really just shows you that we've had a bit of a backup here on you know maybe not so supportive technicals like we were expecting. The first market reaction to Delta variant, those macroeconomic concerns that would naturally give some pause, some some increase in in risk aversion, and that's combined to give us you know an uh, an almost ten basis point backup in credit. But looking ahead, fundamentals are going to stay very strong. Macroeconomically, as long as we don't have widespread lockdowns again, as long as the vaccines remain effective against severe COVID outcomes, all the data points to that. And now we have booster shots coming. Where early trial data is showing an increase in effectiveness against even in infection there. Uh, without any of those things happening, you know, we have the macroeconomic environment likely to provide a tailwind for credit and technicals turning from, you know, not so supportive to I'd, I'd say neutral. I'd stop short of calling them supportive, but I don't think they'll be as unsupportive. And really, these three things combined to give us a pretty bullish view on credit here. Yeah, Dan, and this backup we've seen in August is something that we had talked about. We had expected that we would see some amount of backup. It seems like 10 basis points is about what we're going to get. And so any further weakness, I would advocate adding long positions in credit. And then I think going into year end, we could start to retest some of these cyclical lows that we saw at the end of June and potentially even get narrower than those levels. One major risk to that view, I suppose, that is worth talking about is the impending announcement of the Fed taper. We're both on record that we don't think there's going to be anything resembling a taper tantrum, but that the impact of Fed tapering will be further down the road. That's more of a 2022 story. Assuming that that is borne out, I expect credit spreads to reestablish all-time lows around the end of this year. Yeah, we'll talk about tapering a bit more next week. Next week's episode will probably focus, you know, at least a little bit on Jackson Hole and, and what's revealed there. We're expecting to get some tapering talk. So we'll talk more about tapering. Generally, I agree with you. So, you know, we're aligned in our view that spreads are going to keep going narrower. So I guess the key question becomes, Dan, if you're expecting credit to continue narrowing into the end of this year before we start to see maybe some headwinds in early 2022, 
how low do you think they can go? We we just touched cyclical lows of 80 basis points at the end of June. I think going back historically, the lowest observation we have on record is about 75 basis points on the broad IG index. Can we get through 75? Yeah, I think it's possible. We'll stop short of putting a target on that four-year end, but I think the 70s is is probably about where we can get by the end of this year. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a target. I think we're going to be in the upper 60s at some point in time by the end of the year before I really think that this rallying credit could run out. I mean, there's just so much pointing to spreads going narrower. Yeah, I think from this point, when, once we start to see spreads narrow, it's going to turn to a technical story. And I think that's probably what will dictate how low spreads can go by the end of this year. Anything else, Dan? No, uh, we'll look forward to next week talking a bit more about Jackson Hole. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 